So we want to talk about work today. That's our subject in our study in Proverbs. We want to talk about work. Here's what Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, says. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. Well, we know that, right? And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to, do, is to love what you do. And if you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you will know when you find it. Steve Jobs. So I thought I loved my first job until I got fired. <laughs> That's right. The North End News Agency fired a fourth grader because he got pneumonia. I mean, I was the proud delivery guy of the Chicago Daily News Route 48A. All of those delivered to an apartment, which meant my route took like three times longer than everybody else's route because I'm running up to the second and third floors and I got 250 and a candy bar and I got fired because I got pneumonia. So I thought I liked that first job until I heard I got fired. I grew up in a home then I don't know if there was ever a job that my parents didn't like. They loved working and they loved to work hard. hard. And one of the things as I look back on my family is they, the two things I'm most grateful for is my parents taught me to love Jesus and they taught me to work hard. So if you don't know this, my parents came over from Switzerland. My mom was uh, by trade a milliner. You're going, what's a milliner? A hat maker. In fact, when she came over to America and they went to Winneka Bible Church where I grew up, she was meeting with a group of women and she told the women, at least this is what they thought she said with her thick Swiss German accent, I'm a millionaire from Switzerland. <laughs> I love that. There were hat boxes all around our house. Ladies would come over. My mom would make these cool hats back in the day when ladies still donned hats. My dad, his dad was a carpenter, a master carpenter. There's still some houses back in my dad's village that I can see where my, my grandfather built these houses. This is in the day before anything was manufactured. So every door, every w window, every piece of trim, you know, he had his own forest. He could, my, my dad wanted to be a carpenter. But his older brother got the, got the family business. So my dad went into dentistry. So he was a dental technician. And growing up, my dad was basically a dental lab owner all the time. And from appearances, you'd go, your dad was a workaholic. Like there was, you know, there's this hope maybe that, that his one son would take it. I, I didn't want anything to do with that, with that dental lab. My dad worked hard. I'd say, most of my life, what I remember is my dad was doing uh, life on four hours of sleep a night. But the interesting thing is, he was always at the breakfast table and he never missed a family dinner. In fact, he never worked on Sundays and he was good Swiss. I mean, we took four to six week family vacations almost every summer. So I grew up in this context of a family that loved to work hard and loved working hard. Now, because we're in all different kinds of places, I get that we're not all at that place of loving our work. I mean, when you hear Jobs quote, I mean, that's, that's the question. Do I love my work? Do I think I could ever find a job where I go, I love my work? Do you think it's actually possible for me to love the job that I'm in today? I think 
Job's quote kind of puts us on this quest for this like dream job. And it's not to say that they're, they aren't out there, but I think if we've been at it for a while, we realize they're few and far between. And I think our study in Proverbs is gonna help us connect some dots here to find out that actually we could love the job that we have today. So we're in different places though, right? Some of us are looking for work. Some of us are looking to get out of work. 30% of people 65 to 74 are still working. That's really changing. We're at different places, right? Some of us are underemployed. Some of us in our dream job. Some of us underpaid, others well-paid. Some of us have been cheated out of commissions. Some of us have received big-time bonuses. Some of us have been lied to about the potential future raise, the, the promotion right around the corner. Others of us seem to carry this golden ticket. They can do no wrong. They just keep clicking their way up the corporate ladder. Some of us do the work of three people and others barely carry our own weight. But here's what I know. Wherever you're at, however you feel about work, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress. Work is hard. It's hard when we lose work, right? We lose a job. Man, that's hard really hard find out wow it's just I guess it's just so much more than a job especially for us guys it's not just guys so much of our identity and meaning and purpose in life is wrapped up in this job it, it's hard when we find ourselves working a lot of hours here's the interesting thing if you're paid as an hourly employee the average work week for Americans is now 47 hours if you're salaried it's 49 hours I'm not talking about the commuting part so we're working a lot of hours and there's a lot of other things that we're doing in our life that, that needs time and our attention, our energy. There's the pressure of a toxic work environment. Some of us are in it. I mean, it is just really hard, toxic, destructive. There's nothing positive going and growing in that environment. There's really a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. For some of us, our company's been bought out. Now there's this thing called contraction and we're wondering if I'm gonna still have a job. There's a new boss, there's a new culture, lots of stress in those buyouts. There's the challenge of how, how, do, I, how do I keep growing and, and advancing in my career without sacrificing my marriage and family? How do I do that? Because everybody who's climbing the corporate ladder above me, they've all done it at a great price. They're on their second, their third marriage. How do I do this? How do I, as a Christ follower, take my love for Christ to be a witness in the workplace without like losing my job and, and you know, losing the relationships that are important to me and I want to point them to Jesus? How do I do this? These are some of the questions. So then there's this whole matter of, so is a job only a job when we get paid for it? Are, are, are we only needing to listen to a message on work because we actually punch a time clock and we get a paycheck? So what about the students who are off to work this week? I think this message is all about being a student. What about the stay-at-home moms? What about the grandparents who are taking care of little ones? What about the retiree? Do we still work as retirees? What about someone who's on disability that for physical, emotional, cognitive reasons cannot find employment? 
Is there work for a person on disability? Is there work for someone who's caring for a loved one? Here's what I'd like to say. We can love our work, the work that you're called to do right now as a student, as a stay-at-home mom, as an executive, you're putting on your tool belt tomorrow and everything in between. We can love our work when our work is connected to God and his work. And that's what I want us to see. I want us to destroy this myth that divides the world into sacred and secular. And Mark, of course you could honor God with your work. Of course you can connect your work with God because you're a pastor. You're in full-time Christian work. Friends, if we are Christ followers, we're in full-time work for Christ. Because wherever we go, he is Lord of our life. And whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we can honor him, right? So I want us to connect these. And so here's what we're gonna look at. This is what Proverbs does. It's really powerful. It's super helpful. It's very practical to realize I don't have to be a pastor. I don't have to be a missionary. I don't have to work on campus with students. I, I, can, actually, I, I can actually connect my work with God and his work by doing this, having the right approach to work so that my work is, is marked by diligence. I'm a hard worker. My work is marked with the, the whole virtue of integrity. I'm honest in my dealings. There's integrity to how I approach work and there's excellence. And then not only how I approach my work, but Proverbs is gonna just make a beeline to how I treat those around my work. All right? So um, we're gonna be getting into Proverbs and Proverbs builds on the law and applies the law. But remember the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy talks a lot about work and it reminds us from the very beginning of the story that work, though impacted by the fall, impacted by sin, is part of God's very good beginning. He created us in his image to enjoy a relationship with him, a relationship with each other. He's placed us in families and he's called us to do meaningful work for him. So Genesis 1:28. hey guys, I planted this garden here and you don't just watch it grow. I want you to cultivate it. You're to take care of it. You're to take care of all the creation that I've created. Under me, you govern and take care and steward all of this created world. That's part of the good beginning. It's not a curse. It's been cursed. It's harder. It's harder because our relationships are harder because we've got rebellion in our hearts. There's hard hearts and there's now hard soil that actually something wild happened. That when Adam and Eve broke ranks with God, it like set a fissure, a crack line through all of creation. So our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and the very ecosystem in which God placed us was impacted by sin. So the ground becomes hard. Now there's thorns and thistles. Remember that when you're weeding this week. And, and, and it's the sweat of our brow. That's why the New Testament will talk about that the creation is groaning for it to be made right. And that's what Christ is gonna do, make all things right. And so it's hard, but it's good. And so we don't approach work like, oh, 
This is just cursed. This is, no, this is a gift from God. It's not that it's not hard, but it's a gift from God. We were created to work. We're not created for the weekend. We, 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 we have all kinds of people around us that are living, if we're honest, some of us are, we're living for the weekend or we're living for retirement right now. That's not a biblical approach to work. This is a gift from God. This is where we can connect our hearts to God and our hearts to other people. This is where we can live out the great commandment. And this is what Proverbs is helping us do. Proverbs is always helping us connect the law of God that's summarized in loving God with all of our heart and loving my neighbor as myself in everyday life at the street level. And, and it includes work. Of course it does. Like how much of our time has to do with work? A lot of our time. So our approach to work, right? Let's talk about integrity. Um, no, let's not talk about integrity. Then we're going to get to that. Let's talk about diligence and hard work, all right? So the first thing that Proverbs does is it doesn't describe to us what a hard worker looks like as much as it warns us about what it doesn't look like. And, he, and Proverbs introduces us to the sluggard. You got to love that name, sluggard. Just think of a slug. I mean, that is one fast-moving creature, isn't it? The slug. So here, here are these great verses and images about the sluggard. 21-25. The cravings of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. In Proverbs 22-13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. A sluggard is always looking for a way out of work, always making an excuse. Remember when? Like, that's how we approach work as children. When our parents said, my kids have done this. Hey, would you do, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. I can't, I can't dad, I can't, I got, I got, no, I can't do that right now. That's what children do. The sluggard is saying, I can't go out in the streets and work. There's lions out there. I could get killed. There's these great images, 26, 14, and 15. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. Aren't those great? One of the commentators says he will not begin things. He will not finish things, this sluggard. He will not face them. He doesn't know the difference between summer and winter, springtime and harvest. And so Solomon says to his sons, hey, you're dealing with this sluggard thing? Go to the ant, Proverbs 6.6. 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, speaking of the ant. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and bam, poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Some of us feel guilty about not having a better witness for Christ and we've not really connected the dots. That your witness begins by doing good work diligently, being a hard worker. King Solomon said, Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So here's the question. At work, am I known? Are you known as someone who's a hard worker or someone who hardly works? 
are, are, are you a person that the team is always having to carry you? Are you someone that the team is always looking to as someone who not only carries their weight, but then some, a hard worker? What are we known for? Now let's talk about this matter of integrity. When we're connecting our work to God and his work, there's integrity to our work. Listen to these verses. 1311, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. 17.8, a bribe is seen as a charm by the one who gives it. They think success will come at every turn. And there are a lot of different kinds of bribes, so to speak, that are played and paid in the world of business. 21, three and six, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So you wanna worship God in your life? Do righteous things, do the right thing. Be just, be fair, be equitable in your dealings. You wanna worship God? Bring righteousness and justice to the workplace. A fortune made by a lying tongue? This is a fleeting vapor. That's like the morning fog. That's gonna be gone in a heartbeat. A deadly snare. You'll get trapped up in all of that because you won't be able to keep truth and lies straight anymore. It'll be your undoing. 23.10, do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. And so we'll know we're traveling the path of wisdom if we have integrity marking our work. That means we know the difference between honest work and dishonest. Doing work that is above board and below board. There's no lying. There's no cheating. There's no buying off. There's no deceit. There's no stealing. Proverbs talks a lot about stealing, usually surrounding the weights and the measures that went to the marketplace where people were buying and selling things. And so 2023 says the Lord detests differing weights. That is, you've got, you've got a weight, it says 16. It's like a pound. It's, it's, it's 16 ounces, but actually it's really only 15 ounces. So you don't have to sell as much and you get more. Dishonest scales do not please him. And so there's lots of ways we can rip off the customer, right? In our bids, overbilling the hours, overpromising on the sale, the guarantee, how we're gonna service the sale. Lots of ways we can rip off the company, the owner. Employee theft accounts for 43% of lost revenue. $18 billion a year that we're all paying for. $2.3 billion more than what is taken out of companies through shoplifters. $18 billion a year. That's staggering. So think about it. The office supplies, oh man, they're never, I mean, come on, we got, how many, how many pads, of, how many of these pens? The office supplies. Filling out your timesheet. Padding the expense report. The intellectual property. The company's merchandise. The company's time. You want to connect your work to God, to God's work, to his ways, work hard. Be a woman or man of integrity in the workplace, be honest. And then the, the, the book of Proverbs talks about the skill. Do good work, do excellent work. Dr. Martin Luther King was all on this point when he was speaking to a group of junior high students, October 26, 1967, six months before he was assassinated. He's in Philadelphia speaking to the junior high students at Barrett 
junior high school, and he's giving the speech that was titled, What is Your Life's Blueprint? And I quote, saying to the students, and when you discover what you will be in your life, set out to do it as if God Almighty called you at this particular moment in history to do it. I love it. See what he's doing? He's connecting their future jobs to God and see it that this is what God's called you to do. You're doing it first and foremost to God. He said, don't just set out to do a good job. Set out to do such a good job that the living, the dead, or unborn couldn't do it any better. If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Leontine Price sings before the Metropolitan Opera. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a good word for not just a junior high student. That's a good word for all of us. Be the best street sweeper if that's what God called you to do. So there's a couple of places in which we can lose our way. The sluggard, that's one way. We're always looking at work as the enemy and we're always trying to do the least amount of work and we're always trying to get out of work and we can't wait till we retire from work and we move down this continuum. And then the other side of the continuum is what we would call today a workaholic. Now, here's the interesting thing. Personally, and sometimes generationally, we do what psychologists call a reaction formation. Where So we grow up in a home where your, your mom or your dad's a complete workaholic and you saw the collateral damage and you were part of that. And you go, I don't want to have any part of that. I'm going to be as far away as I can. And without even knowing it, you just went beyond the point of the healthy point of balance because this isn't a problem to solve. This is a tension to manage. And what you do without knowing it is go, I'm not going to be that person. And you end up right here as a sluggard. Or you saw and you were part of a family system where you go, I, I think there was a lot of laziness and there was collateral damage there. And you go, I, I'm going to be a hard worker. And you go right by the, the point that we need to live at and we end up over here so we can lose our way. And it happens on both sides today. I think I'm talking to a group that primarily will struggle with this area, the workaholics area. Here's what we know. 57% of workers today, no, of all the workers today, the workers today only take, they only use 57% of their vacation time. That's just a little over half. So almost leaving half of vacation days on the table, so to speak. 25% of workers check into work on vacation. Get this, on an hourly basis. Is that messed up? I mean... <laughs> I can't, that is like, oh, yeah, yeah, 25% check in to work. That, you know what that means. Oh, honey, just, oh, oh, you won't believe what just, oh, that's not good. That is not going to give you rest. That is not going to be a vacation that renews your soul. I mean, the statistics are crazy. 59% said they check work during holidays. 64% of Americans canceled vacations last year. A third of it did it for work-related reasons. And we're forgetting that in the context of creation and work, God 
stopped and he rested. And that's a creation rhythm that's to mark our work and our approach to work, that we work six days and we rest one. We work six days and we rest one. And to figure out what that looks like, the best way to do it is go to Jesus who, who kept the Sabbath. Even though there are a bunch of people say, you're breaking the Sabbath, you just heal that guy, that's work. Jesus is going, no, that's not work. Doing good work on the Sabbath, that's not breaking the Sabbath. So when Jesus is resting on the Sabbath, where do we see him? Well, he's a church. He's sometimes teaching a church. He's worshiping a church. That's what we do on, the, on this day of rest. We're connecting with God and other people. That's what we're doing right now. This is good. This is part of it. He's doing good. He's healing. Sometimes he was teaching, right? He's resting. One of the things you see Jesus doing all the time on the Sabbath is he is in community. He's breaking bread. He's having great uh, community with friends and acquaintances. The word Sabbath means to stop. Stop working our day-to-day -day jobs one day in seven. And that means stop thinking about it, not just doing it. So connect your work to God's work, our approach to work. Hard work, integrity, excellence. Now turn to chapter 31. And we're going to find a woman who's doing all of that. And then we're going to gain great insight on what it means to connect our work to God in how we treat people. So if you're turning to Proverbs 31, if you grew up in the church, you're going, oh, I think that's like that famous Mother's Day passage. It talks about this godly woman and wife, and it sure does. But can I say there's no better passage in all of Scripture to teach us about work than this one that describes this godly woman who's an amazing worker. She's doing good work. She's connecting her life to God. And it's seen not only in how she approaches her work, but how she treats the those around and like get our eyes on this woman and learn from her. It's powerful. Verse 10, a wife of noble character who can find. She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant chips, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. 
Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gates. So what I want us to notice here is just not her hard work. I mean, it's unbelievable, this woman. Unbelievable. But I want us to to recognize how her relationship with God is changing the way that she interacts with the people and the result of her interactions. So at the very beginning, verse 10, it says she's noble. She's a virtuous woman. She's a godly woman. She's a woman of godly character, okay? Then at verse 30, we notice that she's extolled for being a woman who fears God. That's code language for she's in relationship with God. She trusts God. She sees God for who he is, and she responds with reverent awe, with humble obedience, and she's wrapped in strength and dignity because of that. And all the relationships she has are blessed and graced and made better because of that. And so whether it's her children or her husband or the servants in her household, the poor and needy around her household, the the men and women that she does business with in the marketplace, all of those relationships, the broader community to her own family, her household are all graced. And she's handling these relationships with dignity She treats them with respect, with great care. She's mindful of the affairs of her house. Kindness and compassion mark the interactions with with the people in her home. And all that would be said of us in our families that so often become the collateral damage when we put work in a place that it shouldn't be and we sacrifice family because of it. All that it would be said of us, verse 10, and all that it would be said of us if we're singles, verse 12 actually, that all that we do is this, that we're bringing them, our spouse, our family, and friends good all the days of our life. And, and so this is this, her whole perspective is she's here to serve her family. She, her, her role in her husband's life brings him great honor, esteem in the community, brings brings great security to her children as she prepares meals for them, gets food for them, and makes clothes for them, and makes sure they're prepared for the tough winters to come. She's, She's doing good to her servants, making sure they have adequate supplies, as in food. She's doing good, extending her arms with provision and compassion and mercy to the poor and needy around her. She's watching over the affairs. She's attentive to the affairs. Proverbs will say this, 27, 23, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. Well, she, she's not just watching over her flocks. She's attentive to her servants, to the poor, to her family, to her man. How we treat people will be either how we're connecting or disconnecting our work to God. And can I say, this will be the difference maker. You you, want to see people's lives change by Christ and your love for Christ? This will be the difference maker. I'll never forget the day I visited my friend Jamie. He's the CEO and president of a large international company. 
You've, I'm sure, bought some of his office supplies. Think paper shredders and banker boxes. And I met him in his office and before long we went off into the manufacturing part of the plant to just tour the facilities and see how they make all these widgets and all these boxes and all these paper shredders. And man, they had all kinds of cool machines. But you know what? That's not what I remember about that day. What I remember about that day then and now is he greeted everybody that he met that was working on the floor by their first name. Are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. Like there were dozens of people and there were hundreds of people and there wasn't anybody that we walked by and that walked by him that wasn't greeted by their first name. And whenever it happened, I saw what happened. They lit up because he's the president. He's the CEO who calls him by name. So we get back to his office. I said, how did you do that? How do you do that? And he pointed to a Rolodex on his desk. And you know those old ro Rolodex? Some of us young going, no, I don't. What are you talking about? <laughs> Ask your parents. So it's like all these little cards that are hinged on the spine. And he had every employee. I think he had a picture, their name, and names of their family. He says, I pray through these names. And I, I make it a point. I'm intentional about learning their names. Because I want them to know this isn't what this company's about. That I'm up here and you work for me. We're on the same team. You matter to me. You're important to me. Call them by name. Wow. So halfway through the morning yesterday, a buddy from church and I were, we just had one of these, we took a break from the weed whacking and the weeding and we were talking about work. And so this guy was an executive in a, a, another big firm, international firm. And he was telling me about yeah, that, that's just, that's it, man. You gotta love on your people. He said, we would have people in our home and there'd be times when people would be in the hospital. And I remember visiting that couple. One of the guys' wives just lost a baby. So I went there and I asked them if I could pray. And they had this really quizzical look like, what does that mean? But they said, sure. And I had a chance to pray with them. And then he said, you know, because of how I live my life, I had an opportunity to lead four of my secretaries in my career to Christ." And it's not because he pulled them in and said, hey, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus Christ and I'd like to go through this, this gospel track with you. It wasn't what he was pushing to them. It was how he was living, how he was treating them. And then it came to him. And some of us are feeling guilty that we're not like being Billy Graham on the workplace. Do good work at the workplace care for people at the workplace. And what happens is they come to you like they did to my friend, like they're doing to you. And they say, what is it about you? What is it? And you're not gonna break any HR policy when you say, well, I'd love to talk to you. You got 10 minutes? And you tell them how Jesus Christ has changed and is changing your life. That's how you connect your work to God's work, your heart to God's heart and everything that you do in life to his mission and all of a sudden you find that your work when it's connected to God can do what your work disconnected to God can never do because when it's disconnected, it becomes an idol and you make a deal with work. Here's the deal. I'm gonna work my tail off for you work but here's what I'm asking for you. I need some love. 
I need some happiness. I need some meaning. I need some significance. I need some cash that's going to give me security now and in the future. I need all these things from you. And what happens is we flip it all around and we approach work for what it can do for us. And we approach the workplace and the relationships, what they can do for us. And you know what happens is when that happens is we become stagnant. And we smell. And everybody in any workplace who sees someone who's just in it for themselves, climbing the corporate ladder for themselves, they go, oh, that smells. I don't want anything part of it. But we do that. We do that when we disconnect work from God. But when Christ transforms our work, it's because he's transformed our hearts. And then it all flips around. And we find out that, you know what? Work may promise those things, but it can never deliver. We're looking for work to give us those things, but it can't ultimately give us those things. Only Christ can. And so when we surrender our hearts to Christ, he transforms a heart and we find in Christ fullness. So we don't have to go to work needing things from work, needing things from the people at work, needing things from the customers we work with. We are positioned because we're full to serve and to give because Christ is transforming us. And all of a sudden, we're finding out that this one who worked and who had calloused hands, this carpenter's son, Jesus of Nazareth, he extended his hands and he let the soldiers drive the nails through his hands. And that's where our lives get changed. When we believe he did it for us and we find in him forgiveness of sin, we find in him the removal of guilt. And how's that working to get rid of it? You can't work faster. You can't work harder. You can't turn up the noise. You can't do more sex. You can't do more drugs. It will never get away that which you know is there. But Christ has paid for it. And he gives us peace. Peace with God. He gives us security. That, that, that we are known by God. That's our identity. And there isn't any job that we have or lose. There isn't any performance evaluation that could be given us that changes this fact that we're a child of God. Are you kidding me? The creator of the universe is our father. That's security. And Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. You get that satisfaction of being in relationship with a God who loves us perfectly, even though he knows us perfectly. That transforms our work, radically transforms our work. So the gospel so powerfully articulated in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this, God's grace, our salvation is a gift of God. It's not a result of our works. We didn't earn God's favor. We didn't earn our salvation. It was a free gift, undeserved, unmerited. It is a gift, not a result of my works that no one should boast. Then he says in verse 10, these powerful words that I want us to understand and connect. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork. That's the word, literally, masterpiece. Say that to yourself. I am God's masterpiece. Most of us don't feel like that when we look in the, we feel like we're God's mistake. We're a mess. We're God's handiwork. If we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God has prepared in advance for you and me to do. And it's not just the stuff you do at church that are the good works. It's the stuff we do in life. It's the stuff that we do in the workplace. So Jesus says, let your light shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works, Matthew 5, 16, and glorify your Father in heaven. And so when we go to work, understanding, as Dr. King said, that we're working for God and that we're actually serving Christ in the workplace, as Paul tells us, we are positioned to love our work and we are positioned to make a huge difference in people's lives. Look at Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Sounds like Solomon Ecclesiastes, right? Work at it with all your heart, all your might, as working for the Lord. This isn't about me. It's not about anything other than I'm serving Christ. He's who I work for. My boss, my coworker, the customer, the hard ones, the good ones, the easy ones, the not so easy ones. I'm working for the Lord. That's how I go into the workplace. I'm seeing Jesus, every relationship. I'm serving Christ. Not for human masters. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So let me end with this story. University of Michigan joint study with Duke, excuse me, Yale, studied how people in unglamorous jobs coped with their often devalued work. Some of you are going, that's my job. That's a very unglamorous job. I feel very devalued, maybe because of the work or just because of how they treat you at work. So when the researchers tried to think of, so what kind of a job would be like that? They decided janitor at a hospital. So they went to a Midwest large hospital and they conducted surveys and questions and interviews with this maintenance staff. And they found out that there were two subgroups and they didn't have a clue that they would find this. One of the groups saw themselves as janitors at the hospital. We clean floors and we make sure it's just healthy and hygienic. That's our job. They identified as maintenance people. These people over here identified as part of the healing team. Yes, we clean floors. Yeah, but we do more than that. We serve people. And so they talked about, hey, whatever we could do to help out. Sometimes it's just get them a Kleenex box. Sometimes it's refilling their water. You know, things that maybe a CMA, maybe a nurse would be doing. We, whatever we could do, we would help them out. We'd encourage people. We'd be there with the family. One, one of the hospital workers said, you know, for some of the comatose patients, I don't know if this works or anything, but I just thought maybe just rearranging some of the pictures in the wall would help them heal. So they're just... Totally different mindset. And so they dubbed these people as people who are job crafters. Really interesting term. Job crafting means that people take their existing job and their job descriptions and expectations and expand them to suit their desire to make a difference in somebody else's life. One of the researchers said, a job crafter is a person who doesn't just reshape their job, for their own benefit, but for the benefit and well-being of others. And friends, God's asking us to job craft. And J Steve Jobs, I think, could lead us astray on this wild hunt for the elusive dream job that you and I may never get. And Jesus is saying, let me transform your heart, give you my eyes, my energy through my spirit that you might love people like I do and find out in the doing that all of a sudden you love your work.
Let's pray. Lord, change our hearts for the person who is in a really hard place at work and doesn't know you. Would you use all that's hard in their life to bring them to you? You say to us, come unto me, all you who are weary and worn out, and I'll give you rest. Lord, I pray that your spirit, your word would just draw people in right now. And Lord, I pray that you give us new eyes and a new heart for whatever we might think is mundane, that we would job craft our jobs for you, that we'd serve well this week, that we get excited about doing our work this week. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the wrong attitudes we have about work and that you'd renew within us a sense of expectation and excitement wherever we are in life to engage you and others in this world by doing good. For Christ's sake, for his honor, to bless those who are hurting around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.